This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 18th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by former Green Bay Packers Vice President Andrew Brandt. We'll discuss the allegations that Carolina Panthers owner Jerry Richardson engaged in inappropriate workplace behavior and Richardson's announcement that he's going to put his NFL team up for sale. We'll also speak with Chris Nowinski of the Concussion Legacy Foundation about the recent spate of high-profile head injuries in pro football and how to get fans and players and teams in the league to care about the dangers of big hits. Finally, Deadspin's David Roth will be here to discuss the NFL team that's declaring bankruptcy on account of kneeling thugs and other fake sports news stories populating websites like viralusa.org. He'll also assess a different kind of fake news story, one that had at least some people convinced that the Washington football team had changed its name to the Red Hawks. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. We are still looking for an intern, if uh, I may. Hang up at Slate.com if you're interested. Send us an email. We're looking for somebody starting in January who can do work in D.C., on Mondays, come into the office and do some research over the weekend. If that might be you, email us at hangupatslate.com. On Sunday, Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim and Viv Bernstein published a piece revealing that at least four employees of the Carolina Panthers have received, uh, quote, significant settlements from owner Jerry Richardson or from the franchise itself. Per Sports Illustrated, those settlements, which have come with non-disclosure agreements attached, 
have stemmed from inappropriate workplace comments and conduct by the 81-year-old Richardson, including sexually suggestive language and behavior, and on at least one occasion directing a racial slur at an African-American Panthers scout. That was quoting from the SI piece. Among the other examples of Richardson's behavior cited in the piece are requests he made to female employees to personally shave their legs, um, that Richardson would shave their legs, um, giving back rubs that lingered too long or went too low down the spine, and brushing his hand across women's breasts while supposedly chivalrously fastening their seatbelts. Late on Friday, before the SIPs came out, the Panthers announced they had hired an outside law firm to investigate the as-yet-unreported allegations. On Sunday, the NFL announced it would take over that investigation. And then that same evening, Richardson released a statement saying he was going to sell the team with Sean Diddy Combs and Panthers fan Steph Curry, both announcing their interest in buying the franchise, which Forbes values at $2.3 billion. Joining us now to discuss is Andrew Brandt, who served as the vice president of the Green Bay Packers before becoming a humble media member like ourselves. You can read his stuff at the MMQB and The Athletic. He also hosts the Business of Sports podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be with you. Quite quite the news this week. Yeah, so um, Richardson's behavior, um, as detailed in Sports Illustrated, it's fairly shocking, I would say. Um, but I would say the most shocking part of it was his announcement that came out on Sunday that he was planning to sell the team. Um, you know, as we've seen in, um, you know, the various allegations that have come out um, after, um, you know, the, the big Harvey Weinstein story in the New York Times, that in a lot of cases, people have left or been pushed out of organizations when there is someone who can fire them, when there is someone who is in con- in control of that organization. But Richardson didn't have to do this. Were you surprised that um, he made the announcement that he was going to sell the team? I was a bit. I mean, I think the swiftness and rapid rapidity of this whole incident is just amazing that the story comes out over the weekend, and by the end of the weekend, he's selling the team. As you said, you know, what's happening around the country, around the world, starting with the Weinstein and even before, just seems to be bringing up all these different allegations and proven allegations in all areas. And now it has hit NFL ownership. You know, I have seen Jerry Richardson in league meetings for 10 years. He had, it seems odd saying it now, but kind of a regal presence very respected among his ownership base, one of the longest-serving owners and the only owner that played in the NFL. So he had this kind of special air about him, even within the ownership group. So now we see someone that had tremendous respect among ownership getting out. At the same time, it's also possible that other owners and even Roger Goodell didn't know the way that Richardson was operating the Panthers franchise. Yeah. And, I mean, this is a, he was obviously, you know, very paternalistic, very Southern. Employees called him Mr. I mean, just sort of very weird old behavior. To be clear, they didn't call him Mr. Richardson. They, they called just him called him Mr. Mr. That was it. Yeah. It's really weird and 
gross, I think. So, Andrew, what what's striking to me is a couple things. One, did the NFL take swift action and pressure Richardson to do this to avoid a deeper investigation by both media members, by lawyers, by whoever is going to conduct the, the NFL's internal probe um, to get him out? I mean, he also is 81 years old. Um, this is not a, a young man yeah, who's going to sell at some point. Yeah, this is question anyway. here. Before this goes any further, we sort of wonder what happened over the weekend. We heard that they were doing their own investigation right. before this became a league matter. All of a sudden, it's a league matter. All of a sudden, he's selling it, and we don't even know if the league's going to continue looking into this rather than just prepare the vetting of potential new owners, which seems to be gaining steam with, with tweets, I'm sure we'll mention. But I wonder now where this has been all these years, yeah. because owner business is pretty well known within the league. What they're doing in, other, in their other businesses, minority shares, things about taxes and stadiums and estate planning, that all comes up in committee meetings and in full ownership meetings. They know a lot about everyone else's business. Now, personal business, I'm not as sure, but if there are settlements... If there is known behavior uh, that sort of everyone around the Panthers knows, I mean, again, that is something that does filter out into the rest of ownership. So maybe this is a, I don't know what you want to call it, a hidden secret all these years. And, and I think what this all says is that we don't really know what was going on inside the operation of this franchise. And, you know, you were struggling to find a word there for a second to describe the NFL's behavior. And does the word cover-up enter the conversation? What did the NFL know? When did it know it? How long had it tolerated Jerry Richardson in the ownership ranks because he was respected, because he brought this team to Carolina 20 years ago, because he was viewed as, a, you know, as you said, a former player, a pillar of the community, someone with deep and abiding loyalty to the league and its operations. What we have to find out is if this law firm is going to be doing this investigation, how far are the tentacles going to reach? And then I guess what you're kind of uh, hinting at is Where's going to be the fallout on the league side right? Uh, for behavior that was tolerated, for behavior that was known, and then, of course, internal settlements? Where was their position on that? Again, the league versus team dynamic here is going to be interesting. I don't think the sale of the franchise is just going to sweep the past under the rug here. I think what we're finding culturally is that someone can be respected and still do the things that Jerry Richardson um, has paid out settlements for um, supposedly doing. And that is the problem here. It's that if you look at the descriptions of this behavior um, of the inappropriate remarks of inappropriate touching of racial slurs of creating this like antebellum sort of environment as like a rich old white man in a um, franchise, you know, where the, the talent on the field is predominantly black, that all of that stuff could exist. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, well, wait, you know, we have to wait and see what people knew when they knew it. But I think it's totally plausible that 
someone who did all of the stuff that he did could be quote unquote respected, especially given that the demographics of NFL ownership, all these people look like Jerry Richardson, all these people, you know, maybe they didn't play in the NFL like Jerry Richardson, but you know, they have the same amount of money he does. They're all white like he is. And I think that's an NFL culture issue, but it's also, you know, reflects the, the broader cultural conversation we're having. It's interesting because we see these words thrown around in sports ownership that maybe aren't thrown around in other businesses, such as the word owner. Uh, and again, with the optics you just mentioned of predominantly African-American players and predominantly white owners, that is the word. And it's a word that's been ingrained in our culture and sports. The other thing we talk about is Mr. You talked about the anomaly of him being just called Mr. rather than Mr. Richardson, but even there, all these owners are called Mr. So-and-so. Uh-huh. And I was a team executive at a pretty high level, vice president, but it was assumed that I would call them that as well. Right. And that's a little, you know, now thinking back and reading these stories, maybe that's impetus for some change, a little more, a little more equality in just addressing people. And it's not just employees, to be clear. It's like Jim Nance calls Robert Kraft Mr. Kraft on television. It's just the kind of like automatic respect that not just employees, but like everyone who's around sports gives to the, the man, and it's usually the white man who owns the team, is something that we need to take a step back from and acknowledge and, and try to, I think, question. Because it's always the players who, um, if because they're more, maybe it's because they're more public figures, maybe it's because the, whether it's, you know, if somebody gets arrested or does something on the field, it's a lot more visible. Um, that They're the ones who, um, if the league has a bad image or a bad reputation, it's blamed on them. But the issues here that, um, you know, were, were brought to light by this Sports Illustrated piece, people should be out- outraged by this. And it does, um, you know, we'll have to see what um, happens in any investigation. But this speaks to legitimately a major issue with the NFL and one um, that that people should be aware of and, and think about. And potentially with other sports too, Andrew. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting part of this with Richardson himself, just speaking as someone who's been involved in this for a long time. And actually, I was... I was with John Wertheim the other day, and he asked me about Richardson. Obviously, I know what, I know why now, but he didn't share with me what was going on. But Jerry Richardson is perhaps the most hawkish owner. In other words, a lot of the CBA, collective bargaining negotiations, dealings with players, he would be the one in the room demanding the owners leverage the players towards a better deal. The owners use their power to really put the players in their place financially. There's a comment, I believe, you know, about you don't understand in bargaining, saying to a player, maybe even Peyton Manning, son, have you ever read a spreadsheet? Mm -hmm. Do I Uh, need to help you read a revenue chart, son? Exactly. Uh, And that's his reputation on the business side. So one one thing, I mean, they would never admit it because they respect the man. He's a former player. But I would think the NFLPA, which has traditionally been on the wrong side of the deal, may appreciate this news. 
that the most hawkish owner is off off the chart. It is not not in the picture anymore. Not in the bargaining. Now, who knows if he was going to be part of the bargaining in the future anyway, at his age and and health, but. That's not part of it anymore. So the most hawkish owner is out of the picture. And, you know, maybe that's a bigger picture story that the NFL wants, whether it be more youth, more player-friendly ownership. Uh, There's an opportunity here for the NFL with new ownership. And needs it. I mean, Jerry Richardson, in addition to those things, at one point questioned Cam Newton about his tattoos and sort of warned him no tattoos, no piercings. I yeah. think you've got a very nice haircut. He told Charlie Rose, ironically. Can I, can I just jump in yeah. here? Because I, I was making the kind of like broader point about how players get more attention. And the Cam Newton thing is actually the like exact right example because Correct. there was yeah. a, a huge news cycle that we participated in around Cam Newton saying to a, a woman reporter, it's funny to hear a female talk about routes. Uh, He was rightly called out for that and apologized for it. But I strongly believe that more people are going to have opinions about Cam Newton's opinion about this one woman reporter and the derogatory language that he used. It's going to get more airtime than Jerry Richardson apparently systematically harassing um, his employees. And, you know, the I just keep coming back to the idea of like, why do we respect this guy? Like he made his money, his hundreds of millions or maybe billions by running a fast food empire. And he presided over Denny's in the nineties, which if you remember, there were all of these like racial incidents at Denny's where they had to pay out um, to black customers. So we just need to question um, why do we respect him? Why is, um, that the kind of default assumption that Mr. Richardson is someone who should command our admiration. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I earlier in this in our our interview I did sort of distinguish it from Donald Sterling, but now hearing hearing you talk in the Donald Sterling NBA example, I mean he was known to discriminate in his housing practice mm-hmm. in right. his real real estate right. practices for years and years. NBA owners knew that. The NBA commissioner knew that. And then they had this secret tape, which was the tipping point to get him out. Again, we're all just sort of talking off the top of our head here, but this is a tipping point. Something happened. Who knows how much they knew over the years about race, about misogyny, about treating employees the way he did. And the tipping point happens this weekend. And again, in this incredibly rapid speed, just like Sterling... He's out. Uh, And to me, as we started, the the speed of all this is what is most astonishing to me. We can, you know, the NFL doesn't move that quickly. And I'm sure this sale will take months and months and months. But this happening so quickly, obviously, there were discussions between leadership and Richardson, and this moves away. Andrew, before we let you go, I wanted to uh, spin this forward a little bit and talk about the potential sale of the franchise. Uh, Josh mentioned in his introduction that Diddy um, expressed interest on Twitter on Sunday night and actually put out a, a, a clip on Instagram. And let's listen to that right now. Okay, y'all, this is just in breaking news. The North Carolina Panthers, okay, are up for sale. 
I believe it's time to turn the franchise over to new ownership. Well, I need to send a message out to everybody in the beautiful state of North Carolina. Um, I will be the best NFL owner that you can imagine. I will immediately address the Colin Kaepernick situation and put him in the running for next year's starting quarterback. It's just competition, baby. It's just competition. But also, I will have the best halftime show, the best selection of music, and we will win Super Bowl after Super Bowl. Um, forgetting for a second that he gets the name of the team wrong and <laughs> makes a couple of other errors in fact in his one-minute Instagram video, the... NFL has obviously had a dearth of people of color, to say the least, in not only ownership, but in, in management as well. Um, do you think it's possible that an African-American owner of the Carolina Panthers is possible? I do, Stefan. And you know what's going on is this is quite a time because we had, you know, we're still reverberating from Colin Kaepernick kneeling a year and a half ago and... I want to give the NFL a little credit here because in my 10 years, I never saw a couple things like happen this year. Number one, a letter co-signed by Roger Goodell and Seahawks receiver Doug Baldwin to Senate Committee on Criminal Justice Reform. I think that's an emanates from Kaepernick. That would have never happened in the past. And number two, the owners accepting into the meetings players in October to talk about these social issues and I'm sure owners, maybe Richardson, one of them, did not like them being sort of put on that equal plane. And number three, a donation of up to $90 million to social causes coming out of that. People can poo-poo it, but it's $90 million. And it wasn't, wouldn't have happened without this sort of social activism. Having said all that, I do think they're ripe for accepting a different look into ownership, yes because all of this is happening at the same time. Who that might be, I mean, we can speculate about Diddy, about others, but yes, I do think they would welcome that. The ultimate, the ultimate arbiter is going to be the money, but we'll see what happens. And the, the follow-up on that is just, what's an NFL franchise worth right now? Uh, ratings have been down on television. There are big questions about whether the billions of dollars that have sustained the league from, from broadcast rights will be there for the taking in the future. I'm really curious to see what someone is willing to offer for uh, an NFL team today. I am too. And listen, I think scarcity creates value. We can all debate about ratings. We can debate about concussions. We can debate about whether it's declining or, or uh, ascending. Revenues are continuing to go up. I think it will be a dramatic price. I really do, because scarcity. These, thing, these things never come free. Fran NFL franchises, are you kidding me? So it's almost like the Balmer sale with the Clippers. All of a sudden, they got $2 billion out of, out of a, the highest franchise price at that time was like 600 million so i think it'll be a staggering number i don't know if that staggering means two two five three but you're going to have what i think is an auction style sale uh, over the next several months so i think it'll be big 
Andrew Brand was the vice president of the Green Bay Packers. You can read his stuff at the MMQB and The Athletic. He also hosts the Business of Sports podcast and runs the Sports Lawn Business Program at Villanova. Andy is a busy guy, but he made the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about some controversial moments from this past NFL Sunday. The catches, the were not catches, the fumbles through the end zone, the index card used to measure whether there was a first down. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag, plus bonus segments on this and other podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. You probably saw the hit last week on Houston Texans quarterback Tom Savage. Savage was driven into the ground, hit his head on the turf, and instantly showed common signs of brain injury. His arms involuntarily bent at a 90-degree angle in what's known as the fencing response and then began twitching. Savage was evaluated briefly on the sidelines, and he was allowed to return to the field two plays later. After one more series showing signs of injury, he was pulled for the rest of the game. Jason Lock. Confora of CBS Sports reported on Sunday that Savage was unlikely to play again this season. Chris Nowinski is with us now. He is the executive director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and the co-founder of Boston University's CTE Center. Hey, Chris. Hey, Stefan. Uh, this was just the latest incident this season involving players who suffered what looked to be brain injuries who were allowed to keep playing. We also had Colts quarterback Jacoby Brissett, Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. After the Savage hit, you wrote on Twitter, I would not let my worst enemy go through the 2017 NFL sideline concussion protocol. The league has made a big deal about its protocol, Chris. What's it supposed to do and why isn't it effective? Well, the protocol is supposed to remove concussed players and identify them and keep them safe from further harm. And, you know, this is a battle we've been fighting for 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, the, the great change has been made is they used to put guys who were knocked unconscious right back into the game and say they weren't doing them any harm. And then uh, we finally, they finally caught up with the literature and are, are, are on paper supposed to remove them. And the problem is the, the standards for the sideline protocol are not very high. And so players keep slipping through the cracks um, and they're easy fixes. And, you know, by by putting out aggressive tweets, I'm trying to create the will for them to raise the bar um, and continue to raise the bar in terms of uh, what players have to go through uh, to get back onto the field. I was really interested. I wanted to talk to you because of how aggressively you've been tweeting. The Jacoby Brissett one that you sent out um, was, you know, really angry and I think pointed and and appropriate in, in its anger and pointedness. And so I was wondering if you did it consciously because, you know, Stefan and I have talked about this stuff on this show for years. You obviously have been talking about it. You've made it your career. But it 
it gets old to just say the same stuff over and over <laughs> and over again. And what you wrote for me kind of broke through. And I don't really want to talk about this. I mean, it, it's it's not that I don't think it's important. It's not that I don't think people should, um, you know, ignore it. But just kind of rhetorically, it's hard to know what to say at this point because we've said it all so many times. And so, like, what are you thinking about in terms of getting people to pay attention? And have you developed a kind of, like, conscious strategy on social <laughs> media just to be more aggressive? Yeah, yes. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I was I was just talking to someone about this the other day because I've, I've said many times before, like, on, on Twitter and social media, I hope this is the last time we see a player – who is having the fencing posture put back into the game, and then of course it's it's still happening. Um, so you're right. I, I am getting more aggressive, and, and the beauty of social media and, and having a following is that um, we can create a narrative around these, so that every year, you know, let's be honest. If we don't aggressively tweet about this, there was you know the NFL after the Savage incident had a 9 p.m call the next day with all of their advisors going, okay, what, what are we going to do here? They wouldn't be trying that hard unless the public was aware through the media um, that there was a problem. This isn't appropriate. And, and unfortunately, like I have a responsibility as the, you know, as the CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation to advance this conversation, not just because we're trying to protect NFL players, but really because this whatever's done on the NFL field is the bar for which everybody else in the country sets what how, how do you appropriately respond to a concussion. And so, you know, you think about all those you know, millions of youth football players out there with no medical professionals who might see a kid get on the ground and have a seizure and find these things on, on YouTube where they are and coaches are patting on the back going, suck it up, get back in there. Um, and so, you know, we have to, you know, we have to change the narrative on this, but you're, you're also right that it's frustrating to post these things when the real conversation we need to have about football is not concussion care, but it's really about CTE. The, the missed concussion issues are, are sort of a distraction from the main narrative, in my well, opinion. Well, the main narrative is long-term and everything else is cumulative, right? So we have to have a conversation about all of it. I mean, the recognition starts at a very early age and it starts with with getting people to understand that this is a brain injury delivery mechanism football. It is not, not a, a, a sport. Um, and it's a sport too. It's a sport too. It can be both. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what the awareness part from your tweeting and having these conversations though, I think is that it has succeeded in at least making viewers, if not coaches aware of of instances when this happens, when it's really obvious now that, oh, look at Tom Savage's arms, that's a sign of a brain injury. So there, there's incredible utility in, in making the public see what constitutes a brain injury. So then the next step becomes, you know, the next question becomes, why can't the NFL just treat this for what it is so simply? I don't think the protocol itself is bad. It's the enforcement of the protocol. Dom Casatino on Deadspin did a great piece last week, I thought, that sort of broke down the failure in the, the league in enforcing the protocol. Well, you know, this is actually a great opportunity, and your audience is the right one to have this conversation with about what exactly is wrong with the protocol. Because the NFL is trying to take the narrative and say, these are human error issues, and it's only, only happened, they claimed, twice all season. Right. And so if you look at um, what happened in this situation, it appears that 
you know, that, that no one saw the video of Savage sh- showing the fencing response. And so the question is, well, shouldn't the video be mandatory for clearance? And the reality is in some, like in world rugby, that's become the, the standard hmm. that a do- in world rugby, you now you can't go back onto the field for, I think about 10 minutes. And the doctor has to look at the video of the mechanism in the aftermath before you can be cleared. That is a level to which the NFL could go to, but the reality is the NFL and the NFL Player Association sort of negotiate this protocol, and I'm not sure if the NFL players want to be held out 10 minutes automatically every time just in case they you know, shouldn't be out in those rare times um, that, they, that they don't have a concussion. But the separate issue and what we're not talking about is the sideline protocol itself and what they're asking of these doctors is incredibly weak. For example, Jacoby Brissett, who was hit in helmet to helmet, laid down, grabbed his helmet, and then put his head hands to his side, but did not move. It only lasted about three or four seconds, but those of us who had a million concussions can recognize what it looks like. Um, they would not consider that a breach of protocol when he was put back into the game, finished the game, and then after the game had a concussion. And so my the other argument is they're not treating obvious signs of uh, on the field as concussion, and they're not aggressively pulling people out. And they sorry, they wouldn't treat that as a concussion because they didn't feel like Brissett's actions on the field were enough of a manifestation of concussion symptoms. Correct, correct. Because again, you could go with the logic that I believe World Rugby uses, and this is partially because our medical director, Doctor Cantu, has advised them, where they say if you can't come up with another explanation for what you saw in the field being due to a concussion, it's a concussion. The NFL doesn't have that standard, so why you know they they they're going to say Jacoby Brissett grabbed his head because his neck hurt, and we're just going to do the sideline test, which is frankly, hey, do you have any symptoms? Which players are almost always going to say no, and they sometimes they don't. Um, and then, uh, you know, can you remember these five things? It's an incredibly weak standard through which to throw guys back onto the field, knowing that I believe about one in five, again, this is World Rugby data that was tweeted to me by the World Rugby Medical Director, one in five of their guys has uh, delayed symptoms after the game who, who passes the sideline protocol. One change that has happened, or at least there's a discussion around it, is the possibility of instituting a targeting penalty in the NFL like the one they have in college. And that is if a player targets um, an opponent above the shoulders, um, then that can be an ejection from the game rather than just a fine afterwards. There was a hit um, in the Panthers-Packers game where Thomas Davis of the Panthers hit Devontae Adams of the Packers after an interception, just blew him up from um, the blind side, knocked him out of the game. I'm sure that Davis is going to get fined. He might even get suspended. Um, but what do you think about the possibility of instituting um, a review like they do in college of targeting plays and potentially ejecting players? Do you think that's a good idea? And do you think it could potentially change on field behavior? I do think it's a good idea, and I do think the the evidence supports that even when the NFL threw in uh, penalties for helmet-to-helmet hit on defensive players, that helmet-to-helmet hits dropped, even with only a handful of high-profile flags. So there's one thing, and of course that's NFL data, so I can't trust how good it is, but I I think there's enough uh, evidence that you can change behavior, you can change how people block and tackle. And so... I, I think if the if the fans can come become educated, even the players, 
that this is better for everybody collectively. And even though you're going to have these really annoying times where you don't think it's appropriate or it wasn't fair or the guy moved into a line and you were trying to strike somewhere else and it'll be open to subjective interpretation. If we accept that, the players will be much better off and there will be fewer brain injuries. So I say we have to move in that direction and accept the pain of there will be mistakes in the future. Jordy Nelson said after the Packers game on Sunday, players have to control themselves and take care of one another. And this has been a controversial line of, of, of argument um, in the past and will continue to be because it puts the burden on the players when the players often aren't in a position to, to regulate their behavior on the field because of the conditions of the game. At the same time, what we're really talking about, Chris, is changing football. I mean, when, you, when I watch an NFL game now, and I think that the biggest change in my viewing habits over the last 10 years are that when I watch a game and I see the gratuitous late hit, the piling on, a guy that's already on the ground or on his way to the ground, and players will say it's instinct and I can't stop myself and I'm trained to go in there like a missile. On the other hand, isn't it possible to redefine what a tackle is and redefine what's appropriate through more powerful legislation like outlawing helmet-to-helmet hits um, and throwing people out of the game, outlawing targeting. I mean, it's like a cultural shift that needs to happen in terms of how the game is played. Right. No, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we, the reality is, you know, we have to remember the rules of football are rewritten every offseason and sometimes during the season to continue to protect the players. Um, and make the game more entertaining. And it's just a balance of that. And it's the game that, you know, I, I played in the 90s is not the game that's exactly being played now. And I think, you know, I feel like we're, we're sort of been in an arms race in football for a long time. When you watch some of these hits that you realize that, you know, 50 years ago when this hit was being made, it was being made by a much smaller, slower person. And while people have gotten bigger and stronger and faster, their brains are just as vulnerable, and the helmets, frankly, aren't you know aren't much better. And so we're just sending far more energy into the brains of players. And I think now that's that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. So I I, I agree that um, you know you just got to rewrite the rules, or else everybody if you if you went like you know back to just you know let's let's make it as tough as we can with no protections, like they'd all end up. In, you know, not, not only acutely in the hospital, but long term, you know, with CTE. And I, that's not the direction the game needs to go. So we, we I think we just have to be aggressive in changing it. Maybe we can end by talking about um, the coverage of CTE, um, sort of similar to the point that I was making earlier about um, how we've been having the same conversation about um, concussions and NFL games and the protocols. We've been seeing a lot of um, the same types of stories about the devastation wrought by CTE. There was one I know that both Stefan and I thought was excellent by Kent Babb in the Washington Post about Larry Johnson, who was a star running back for the Kansas City Chiefs, about um, a player fairly recently retired, I think he's still in his 30s, who believes that he is living with CTE and um, suffering um, depression and violent urges. Um, Wondering, Chris, sort of similar to the question that I had about how to um, break through and, you know, with a conversation that has been kind of revolving around the same topic and the same discussion, the 50th story about a player suffering like this isn't going to have the same impact as the first. How do you think about that 
in terms of your work? Uh, that's a great question because, you know, it's just another scenario in which everybody for the last 10 years has been saying, you know, it, it, it's, this is the peak CT discussion. People are going to get worn out on it. And the reality is they're not. And that's because we keep trying to tell the story in, in new ways and interesting ways our own, our, ourselves. Plus, I think the problem is so big and wide that people are stepping forward like Larry Johnson saying, I want to tell my story because I'm struggling. Um but so, luckily, while we've been having this conversation, the, I think the key to keep making it more powerful is that we've kept the research engine, you know, accelerating. And so, if you think back to where we were ten years ago with a handful of CTE cases, I mean, we went to Congress with eleven out of twelve CT cases at the BU Brain Bank, and it was a big deal in two thousand nine. Now we're had, we had one hundred and ten out of one hundred eleven published earlier this year, and it was a big deal, but it didn't create that same sort of attention, and it, it didn't necessarily move the argument forward in everyone's mind as much as it should, because if we'd gone hundred, you know, that that eight years ago would have been much more powerful. The best way to prevent CTE is to shorten careers. We're you know we're seeing a very clear dose response relationship, just like number of years you smoke has a lot to do with whether or not you get cancer. Um, lung cancer, number of years you play football has the, you know, the greatest correlation with whether or not you get CTE. So, you know, we've been talking about Dr. Cantu's been on the record for years saying you shouldn't play youth tackle football, wait until high school, wait till your brain's developed. But now we're going to have a lot stronger data to, to really move that conversation forward. And I'm hoping that we can make significant progress in educating parents that if, even if you love football and want them to play, the best scenario for your child is to wait until high school. Uh, and wait till puberty and wait till their brain's a little more uh, finished <laughs> before it starts getting exposed to this trauma. Um, and so that that's going to be, I think, the, the, the real conversation for the next three or four years is, A, you know, will, will the public accept that? And B, how hard is the NFL going to fight back? And how far is the business of football going to fight back? And just wait until we get a test for CT in live people. I mean, seriously, that will be another uh, marker in how the league and how organized football chooses to respond to the threat to players' health. Chris Nowinski is the executive director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and the co-founder of Boston University's CTE Center. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Stephen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Earlier this month, my favorite website, mysterychristmasgifts.info, published a piece of, let's call it, content. It began thusly. The Jacksonville Jaguars are quietly maneuvering behind the scenes to file a Chapter 11 reorganization of debt bankruptcy in the 3rd District Court of Atlanta next week. The team, already in a market saturated with Dolphins, Bucks, and Falcons fans, made the unfortunate mistake of drafting, developing, and hiring almost exclusively black players, leaving them vulnerable to the latest round of, quote, we've been treated unfairly protests from millionaires. As David Roth wrote in Deadspin last week, this story, which also appeared on the websites viralusa.org and AmericanPrides, 
prides.org, that's prides, plural, that's with an S, is part of a genre of entirely made up articles about NFL player protests. The one that got the most attention was a doctored photo of the Seahawks' Michael Bennett in the uh, Seattle locker room celebrating shirtless with a burning American flag because apparently that's just how he rolls. One version of that Bennett story was shared more than 200,000 times, either by real people or Russian bots, although it can be hard to tell the difference sometimes. Joining us now to discuss is David Roth. He's an editor at Deadspin, formerly of uh, Vice Sports, the late great Vice Sports. How's it going, David? I'm good. Good to have you. Um, you also wrote last week about the Washington Redhawks online hoax, which led people to believe that our man Dan Snyder had finally listened to reason and changed his franchise's name. Um, before we get that, I just want to say this Michael Bennett flag burning piece filled me with a strong desire to vote for Donald Trump and made me extremely interested in Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, what do we know about where these fake sports stories that you identified come from? And is it from the same kind of like Macedonian content mills that we read about um, with uh, fake election news? In the Michael Bennett case, the answer is yes. Uh, as far as I could tell, those, uh, I mean, the stories are shared on many, like dozens of different sites. And it's hard to tell um, with a Photoshop that crappy um, which child made it. Could have been a child anywhere. But it, uh, in that case, most of those sites were based in Macedonia. In the case of the Jacksonville Jaguars quietly entering Chapter 11, those stories all seem to come from sites in Kosovo. Huh. Uh, so Russian then. But yeah. The thing that I found really, um, you know, the maybe the Michael Bennett uh shirtless flag burning photo was poorly done. But when you put quietly in your lead, mm -hmm. like you've studied the tenets of American journalism. Yeah. You got to put it's, quietly in the lead. That's what was, uh, I mean, I think uh, if we're just going to grade these craft wise, I'd say that the, <laughs> <laughs> the Kosovars are doing better at the fake journalism thing than the Macedonians are. Uh, the Michael Bennett stuff was really oafish and, uh, <laughs> and the follow-ups on it were even more so. They were just kind of trying to ring every bit of virality out of that one crappy Photoshop. Uh, but yeah, this actually did, except for the fact that as you, you read far enough into the piece to the point where it gets like really overtly racist. Uh, and that usually we have uh, code for that, that when people are trying to write a super partisan, uh, racially backward story here, they, they usually stick with the whole like quietly restructuring sort of tone, trying to make it sound professorial instead of, you know, whatever, just cutting the wheel and getting uh, real bigoted as these stories did. The uh, clearly the intent here and what I found most interesting and find most interesting about these stories is that they they're making a choice of what aspect of American culture they Kosovars Macedonians believe will push the buttons of the right wing and cause them to share these on Facebook and other platforms and click on, or at least draw attention to, eyeballs to the 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 the, the posts themselves to generate revenue. I mean, these are these are these are an effort to make money. These yeah. aren't an effort to engage in any sort of of social commentary or to foment, you know, pro-Trumpism. And the fact that they've latched on to the NFL as a way to do this, I think, is really fascinating. It is, and I, I agree with you. And I think that. It has something, obviously, to say about where the NFL sort of exists within the continuum of our broader conversation now. I mean, that this is all 
you know, the sites that we're sharing, especially the Michael Bennett thing, um, in this case, uh, and I guess also this, like, are not sports sites. They're sites that are, you know, whatever, they exist to put you up on mystery Christmas gifts. They're info sites in that regard. Or they're, like, just sites that are on Facebook to get you upset. You know, so there's news about, like, a cop helps a child, but then also the child is rude to the cop, and then you get to share it and be, like, disgusting who's raising these kids. I don't know who these are for exactly, why you would be, um, I mean, it's exhausting enough to be alive right now, the idea that you would <laughs> log on and try to find something that makes it worse and makes your experience of being alive worse. You know, that uh, that part of the population is still a mystery to me. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's clearly, this is a market thing. It's filling a need. It's recognizing a need and then filling it. I'm looking at mysterychristmasgifts.info. Sorry. What to, have you learned? I'm sorry to ruin the mystery for you guys, but... Um, <laughs> Here are some of the top stories. Alert! Nationwide listeria outbreak affects vegetables from Walmart, Safeway, Trader Joe's, and more. Here's the complete list. Well, I got to click on that. Uh, number number two, Christian Republican, colon. If women can breastfeed in public, I can grab their breasts. Well, hard to, hard to argue with that logic. logic. Um, but my favorite one is, this old dog was shot 40 times and buried alive, but rescuers saved and loved her just in time. This is like <laughs> Upworthy 8.0, I think. Right? I know. This is what's good about it is that it, I feel like for all of these things, there's that sort of lost in translation bit that you get when you get like a phishing email. And it's like, I'm a Nigerian prince and I have whatever, you know, $2 billion that your uncle left me and I need to get it into your checking account post haste. Like, this is just, they constantly are spinning the dial a little bit more to the right to see what people think. Like, there'll be a story where the dog is shot 55 times, like that'll come out in a month. And then like rescuers will, whatever, nurse it again back to health. Like, it's all the upworthy formulas, but then just like the numbers somehow keep going up. But then there is a sort of Nigerian element to this, too, because I just Googled Mystery Christmas Gifts, and there is a warning, scam alert. You will not get Mystery Christmas Gifts if you follow their, uh, their orders on, on the Facebook page. Stefan, yeah. you're, uh, you're ruining Mystery Christmas for all the children out there. This is the war on Mystery Christmas. <laughs> It's the, the, my favorite of the – most of these are, are sort of twinned so that there's like at least two and sometimes three uh, very similar sites with similar URLs. The other Christmas-themed ones that I found uh, that carried this story were santachristmas.info, which is a great source <laughs> of information for all uh, things having to do with Santa and Christmas. Yeah, for NFL fans. And then one called christmasdailygifts.info. My favorite of the sites uh, for the Michael Bennett thing, it had been taken down, was uh, – Hannity, which was just Hannity with two A's in it, dot com. <laughs> that is good. Yeah, really fun to say. Yeah. So the thing that's like really different here is that back in the like heyday of election fake news, there were stories about like the Pope endorsing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton being implicated in the murder of an FBI agent and Hillary Clinton selling weapons to ISIS and Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these stories, Will Arimas wrote about this for Slate, were shared more times than like any legitimate news story on Facebook. So it's not only that these stories were like obviously incredibly wrong and fake and bad, it's that they were extremely popular and yeah. pervasive and kind of like terrifying in the sense that people were like legitimately getting like bad and, and hurtful ideas um, from them. It does not seem like that would be the case here. 
Um, am I am I wrong to well, think that these I, things are not particularly hurtful or damaging just because they're so obviously fake? Well, are they obviously fake, though, to someone that wants to believe that NFL yeah. players are dangerous black thugs who hate the flag and hate the country? That's just it just reinforces what is an existing opinion among a you know a pretty sizable percentage of National Football League fans. If I were the NFL, I'd be a little concerned by, about mystery Christmas gifts. <laughs> but these things Got haven't been shared as much as the election stuff. No, it doesn't they haven't it. been shared as much, but they've been shared a lot. I mean, that was something that, I mean, the second, the Jaguar story is shared in the tens of thousands of times as opposed to the hundreds of thousands of times with the Bennett one. That's still a lot. That's a lot more times than anything I am ever going to write is going to get shared on Facebook. Like, Obviously, with that attitude, yes. But then, in general, that's this is just the way these things go. Like you're right that the false information seems to somehow travel much faster. I think that at some point, uh, it doesn't really matter if the stuff seems true, and that is something that I find kind of concerning. That I think the way that that fake news or any type of partisan news gets shared on Facebook, I think, has more to do with signaling. Uh, and sort of sure. you know, boosting this message that it does anything else. And so the fact that the Jaguars are obviously not going to be declaring bankruptcy, they're actually having a very good season, uh, it seems not to matter as much as it does that you want to demonstrate that you stand with the people that are against the NFL. Right, right. And it doesn't matter if you're doing that by promoting the purest bullshit in the world. It's just like, sure, you're going to do it. And let's not forget that a lot of people believe the purest bullshit in the world. This is just one more thing for people to believe. All right, let's talk about the Washington Red Hawks uh, online hoax, which I think is the kind of fake news that we can all get behind. Um, David, you wrote about that last week. Tell us uh, about where that came from and how it spread. That one was uh, more intentional. That was a, like an actual culture jamming sort of exercise, to use the, the very dated sounding 90s term for it. Uh, it I read was, about that in your zine, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I couldn't believe uh, that the story that I mimeographed made it to the internet so fast. The, <laughs> it was done by a series of Native American activists, and the, the point of it basically was to, they announced that the Washington football team would be changing its name from the bad thing that it actually is to Red Hawks. And they created a kind of a fake looking logo and put it on a helmet, but they spoofed a series of websites very accurately. The Washington Post, ESPN, Bleacher Report, and Sports Illustrated. And they made stories that, again, it's the same thing with like the quietly restructuring thing that really did read like the stories that you would have read at those publications had this name change really gone down. They also um, mimicked the look and feel the look of the sites. It was yes. professionally really well done. Professionally really well yeah. done. The Sports Illustrated one, like it, they put uh, the byline. There's definitely ways that you could notice that it was fake. Like it was like Sports Illustrated News dot info, whatever type. You know the the same sort of stuff that you would do if you were trying to lie to people about the Jaguars. Uh, but in this case, the idea was to prove basically how easy it would be to do this sort of thing and how much of a, you know, sort of not even a narrative or imaginative leap, but just sort of, you know, you could read this story and nod along and, you know, the quotes are all in the right place and it could happen, except for, you know, of course, Daniel Snyder being Daniel Snyder, it's not. Yeah. The, and I mean, the whole thing was not only plausible, it was actually an excellent marketing plan for a team that and league that would be willing to do this. Red Hawks is a perfectly legit name. It was one of the names that, that, that Native American and other groups have proposed 
for the Washington football team. The logo wasn't terrible. It wasn't the best logo, but it wasn't yeah. terrible. Preserve the colors. It did sort of ticked all the boxes for why this would be a sensible and an appropriate way to approach a potential name change. Um, so I guess the question then becomes, yeah, we're all behind this one because it is, it fits in with our sensibilities and it is, you know, it's not just because it fits in with our liberal sensibilities and we think that the current name of the team is racist and derogatory, but it also, you know, remains a, a scam and a hoax. Um, so where do we draw the line here between, you know, why is one okay and why isn't the other okay? Doesn't really seem like a, a real question. I mean, no, it's, the it's answer, not a real question. The answer, seem, the answer seems pretty obvious, but I do think that... Well, think about the triggered conservatives who saw this hoax and were like, oh, you know. Well, because there's some intentionality behind the sure. content of it. We well, talked about the intentionality other, behind the Michael well, Bennett content too. No, but we talked about that being around making money and mm-hmm. that actually being Correct. a representation of sincere belief. Right. Like this is part of uh entire like ethos and belief system mm-hmm. that not only has the benefit of being like um you know not valid gross. valid yeah. and not gross, <laughs> but is also like yeah. coherent. Um so so that's what my explanation would be. But David, like I guess the the place where I would draw the connection is that people were sharing the Red Hawks thing in kind of a similar spirit as like gross, terrible people would share the Michael Bennett thing as in like, here is like a thing that I encountered and I'm like signaling what my values and beliefs are by like putting this on my Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the part of it. I've talked to a basketball writer I know who shared it because he saw a Native American activist that he follows on Twitter uh, posted it. This is before it became clear that it was a hoax. And he was clear. He was like, it was a really good uh, fake. Like, I that looked like the Sports Illustrated page. I wanted to believe it. And so I shared it. And then as uh, sort of an, an act of penitence, he changed his Twitter AVI to the cryingjordan.jpg thing for a week. That was just his way of, of making peace with having forwarded the fake news. <laughs> I don't know that everybody is willing to take that sort of principled stand when they duff something and get it wrong. But it does seem, it, you're right. I mean, it fits into the broader sort of, idea of signaling uh, through sharing information that you have not really maybe fully checked to be sure is true, you know, signaling that you co-sign that bit of information. But I think in this case, the authorial intent and then the fact that it actually really kind of works as a graceful piece of satire as opposed to like a a child photoshopping a burning flag into a photo of the Seattle Seahawks. Like it's, you know, obviously it's different in some ways, but you're right. I mean, I think it's interactive with in uh, a way that's fundamentally pretty similar. And what's also important about it, I think, is that given how unresponsive and belligerent and so clearly awful the Washington football team has been over the last X years, that this was sort of a necessary step to take the campaign to try to pressure the NFL and to try to pressure Snyder to at least acknowledge the badness of their of their name, because everything else has failed pretty much. Well, yeah, like, this is like what we talked about with Chris Nowinski. It's like, how do you get people to pay attention to a thing where like people, even the people who believe that they should change their name, it's just like you're sick of it. It's just like boring at this point because everyone has said everything that they're going to say and all different manners of saying it. But this was like a new way to get people to pay attention. That's what's smart about it is like reframing the topic. 
that's the part of it that I think was really that wound up resonating to me as like sort of satire that's like way too good to actually be funny in a satirical way. I mean, that there's just because there's no levers left against Snyder. Right. I mean, the things that you're pushing on, like his money is not going to change. He cannot be shamed, uh, which, you know, is like a superpower that some of our most powerful people have right now. Um, and it's not a good thing for everybody else. But this is the sort of thing where, I mean, you can make this point in a new way and hope that it'll get through to people. And that's, I think, really the only button left push, right? There's a great bit in this. It's, I mean, kind of like the the most damning and sad part. But in the fake Sports Illustrated story uh, about the Red Hawks, they take a quote from Snyder. And I noticed that it was, it had that kind of like uh, machine tooled language that you often get in official statements mm-hmm. from that team and in general. And it turns out that they, and so I Googled it because it looked, I was like, that is really good. Like, even though all this coding is good, like that really sounds like something that the press office would put out. And it's just a quote. The quote is, the Red Hawks is a symbol of everything we stand for, strength, courage, pride, and respect. The same values we know guide Native Americans and which are embedded throughout their rich history as the original Americans. That is an actual Snyder quote, except for instead of Red Hawks, he said Redskins. And it's from 2013. And that is like, pretty devastating again it's like it's not going to bother dan snyder because nothing bothers dan snyder except for like uh you know a waiter making eye contact with him or something but like it is you know i mean that's pretty pointed stuff like and you wouldn't think that there'd be a new way to make that point i have to say that the best part of the website though is if you go to washingtonredhawks.com and you look on the right side where they just have the teases to other stories yeah Recommended Kirk Cousins. We need to finish this season strong. <laughs> Samaji Pirine ran the ball really well. Jay Gruden. I think our defense played outstanding. Yeah, I think they just they just pulled all the stuff from the actual skin site, but it's amazing that way because it is like that's the part of it that of the satire that's easier to laugh at is yes. that, you know you take this monumental story and then you just kind of surround it with the rest of it where it's that's like the, ask the ask Jordan of yeah. Right, like Chris Cooley's chili cook-off, like it's going off again. (laughs) David Roth is an editor at Deadspin. He is the author of such pieces as Colin Kaepernick is the guy that shot that dog 40 times and left him to die. (laughs) (laughs) David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now it is time for After Balls and coming out of our interview with David Roth, Josh. You know, it got me thinking, we can't live by Mystery Christmas Gifts dot info alone no we certainly can't we can't those nfl stories were shared on other websites we mentioned a few but there were a few more that david cited in his deadspin piece copsbest.com policetask.com america's finest they love a good nfl story todaypolice.com i think todaypolice.com is my favorite that's a good one i i endorse stefan what is your todaypolice.com? 
Last week, in a regular feature called Words We're Watching, the dictionary publisher Merriam-Webster explored the rise of the word ratio as a verb to describe a tweet so terrible that the number of replies far exceed the number of likes or retweets. The Merriam Post quoted Luke O'Neill's seminal reportage on the subject, which featured ratioed tweets from idiots like Paul Ryan, Eric Erickson, and Chris Saliza. It also quoted our guest, internet expert David Roth, Quote, the invisible hand of Twitter finds some verified oaf talking about how inspiring it was when Trump said the word God, and then it's just a question of gravity. But Roth's role in the lexicography of the ratio is much more substantial than that pithy quote. Merriam-Webster, however, failed to recognize that Roth is a ratio pioneer in his own right. He is the genius behind the baseball slash line ratio. In August, in a piece for Deadspin, Roth recognized something trenchant about certain bad tweets. The replies slash retweets slash likes often reflect the statistics of batting average slash home runs slash runs batted in. Technically, the term slash line refers to batting average slash on base percentage slash slugging percentage, but I think it's perfectly fair to modify the usage because it works well and it's obvious what it's referring to. If it makes you feel better, we can call it the triple crown slash line ratio. Anyway, the slash line ratio, of course, has to conform to baseball norms, replies of 400 or fewer, retweets of under 73 if you're on steroids or so, likes below 200. This can be, to quote David, a way station for bad tweets on their way to Herculean, Rucker-esque ratio annihilation, referring to the Washington Post's Philip Rucker, who was gloriously ratioed after tweeting about a new Trump. But for some Wait, tweets, I thought he was talking about Rucker Park, like Kobe, dun- <laughs> Kobe <laughs> yes. like dunking on people at Rucker Park. That would work, too. And then everybody running on the court. Yeah, it's similar. That would work, too. Uh, but but uh, we've just given away that David is with us now. David's Hello. with us now. That's okay. Hey, how are you? For some tweets, though, the slash line ratio is, as David writes, destiny. The fun in the slash line ratio is finding the perfect MLB analog. In his piece, David compares an Eli Lake tweet that slashed 198.34.84 to one of Adam Dunn's more thoroughly three true outcome seasons. A dumbass tweet by Josh Barrow about water bottles in national parks was, quote, Ike Davis three seasons before he decides to reinvent himself as a pitcher, and Unieski Betancourt the year before he signs with a Korean team. David charted a Confederacy-backing tweet by some rando Twitter asshole as it progressed from, quote, 2017 Chris Carter to, quote, Lyle Overbay has been designated for assignment to, at 358-2884, Mike Trout in a season in which he was unjustly beat out for MVP by a player with more RBI, to finally, when it was slashing 476-4132, Robinson Cano spends an entire season in double-A for some reason. David Roth, as you just heard, is back listening in. Now he's going to talk. Congratulations, Dave, on your uh, life accomplishment here. How does it feel to be the Thomas Edison of slash line ratio? I, uh, it's, it's a complicated mix of pride and then the certain knowledge that I've wasted some of the best years of my life. <laughs> or months, anyway. Yeah, no, I don't know. We'll see. I've been on Twitter for some time now. But yes. Yeah. Have you been slashing for years, though? No. When, did you, no. when were you inspired? When did you come up with the slash line? This was, uh, again, this is one of those things where sometimes you just have to waste years of your life if you want to have a really good observation of something. And this was me sort of looking at Twitter and watching some, you know, like you read the piece. I mean, so it's just like some 
dope going viral for all the worst reasons. And at some point, you know, usually you can see that it sets up and looks kind of has that like weird, uh, you know, like late career Cal Ripken sort of thing where it's like it's retweeted a little bit and it's like, you know, a few people like it, but mostly it's just hundreds of people telling that person to log off. And that, uh, you know, just I saw the numbers and it jumped out at me. And then once you start seeing it, you sort of see it everywhere. But then the challenge is really finding the right analog for the slash line. Um, when Blake Hounsell of Politico asked if anyone had heard of Bears Ears before Obama designated it, um, it went 127-1245. And you wrote, my guy has achieved the ratio that scholars in the field have turned going shimp saying <laughs> Padres infielder Ryan Schimpf. Now that's a fairly obscure guy. He's not exactly a top of the roster player. Well, that's why I'm thinking there. Yes, that's why I'm not a very popular Twitter person. Is that I think about Ryan Schimpf constantly and will make a Ryan Schimpf joke uh, without any consideration for whether people would understand it. Uh, people that uh, want to serve their followers better would maybe wait and for it to turn into somebody more recognizable than Schimpf. I mean, mm-hmm. if you give it. If you give it a you know another few hours, it could be Will Venable, and then that's a much better known Padre. Right, right. The, and that's, yeah. It's that progression that's really interesting in the way the tweets do evolve from one player to another. And 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 what I've also loved is how the public has really picked up on this, David. You've you've inspired a movement here. Uh, you, there was a tweet about the Alabama election that said, uh, "More wants children loved, Jones wants children <laughs> aborted." I'm just going to pause oh, for a second there. Really? You called yeah. that one the rare and exquisite 162-game Chris Shelton ratio, and also when you take mushrooms and look at Carlos Pena's baseball <laughs> reference page. Brody Logan of Fox 5 DC noted that when it hit 302-64-137, it was so close to 2001 Sammy Sosa. And, and I think, like, my head would explode if you if a tweet were screen grabbed at the exact moment it matches some historical number like Yaz's 1967 Triple Crown numbers, 326-44-121, which is why I think we need an app, David. Yeah, people have talked about have this. They? Like when a tweet build a, building a plug-in yeah. on baseball reference yes. so that you could automatically enter the numbers and then it would like, you know, be like computer and it would be like you have Rocky Colavito, like yeah. 1965. Right. Donald Trump yeah. Jr. is currently slashing 1977 Dave Kingman. I mean, the information is out there. I am way too big a dope to make this, but I hope that uh, because smart people listen to this podcast, uh, that one of you could, could try to do that. I think it would be of great service. And also, I mean, because I'm going by feel most of the time. I will go and like periodically check things because I'll have – like a player sort of pop into my head and then I'll realize that like, I actually don't know what most of like Rondell White's seasons were like, like I have some sense of it, but it's, it's broad strokes. So I have to go back and, and sort of research it. If there, I mean, I, I am always looking for excuses to spend more time on baseball reference, but something that uh, did some of that work for me or helped me narrow it down to begin with, I think would be, if it you, wouldn't just be useful to me. I think it would be useful to everybody. If you take requests, I want to put in a good word for like the next time there's a good ratio tweet. I would like to see a reference to Jackie Jensen, also maybe Ted Klazuski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, I think that those ones too, because it was a. I'm, I'm mostly working with guys from like the the '90s and the aughts whose right. lines I remember, but I think there were some completely improbable baseball lines happening in the '50s and '60s that could be, uh, you know, of great service here. A lot of guys, you know, whatever hitting like 320, but then they have like 
two home runs and 16 runs batted in, like some apparitio-ass line waiting to be discovered. Well, David, America thanks you for your service, and I thank you, because in doing this piece, I realized that the term slash line itself needs to be added to the dictionary, and as part of my ongoing book project, in which I've been embedding at Merriam-Webster, I have added it to Merriam-Webster's new words list with a definition. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. David Roth. Thank you for coming on the Afterball. Man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Josh, what's your todaypolice.com? On Saturday, I was one of the very few and sort of proud to watch the LSU Stephen F. Austin game, at least part of it, on the SEC Network, on ESPN. Um, there was a moment in that game that I wanted to highlight, not because anything interesting happened on the court, but what the announcers were talking about. Um, Those announcers were Matt Stewart on play-by-play and Sean Farnham on the color commentary. What you're going to hear in this clip is Farnham asking Stewart how he did in school. Let's take a listen. You ever get a 4.0 in school? Um, No. How about a 4.0 plus? No. No. I mean, the closest I ever got, I think, was like a 3.8. We're talking college, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I got a three eight one semester. I, I mean, I got to talk to my son. My son got a ninety four point five grade point average. That's a four point oh grade point average, right? He's in the seventh that, grade. Yeah, came home disappointed. I'm like, whose son are you? You want me to show you my <laughs> middle school report cards? I promise you, kid. It didn't look like yours. So kudos to Matt Stewart. I don't know anything about you, Matt Stewart, except I guess I know now that you maybe got a three point eight. But that I think is the first time that an announcer has ever admitted to doing well in school, not gone to like the standard trademark, I'm a dumb guy, ha ha ha, look how dumb I am response. Of course, Farnham himself does immediately go into the ha ha ha, look at me, how dumb I am. My kid had a good uh, average in school, but like I was really dumb in middle school because I'm really stupid, ha ha ha. Uh, So... You know, I guess they get a they get a fifty percent, which is an F, but whatever. Who's counting? Um, I, this is a big pet peeve of mine. I wrote about it in two thousand twelve, around the Olympics and the opening ceremony on NBC, where Meredith Vieira talked about, oh, Tim Berners Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web. We don't know who that guy is because you know we didn't bother to do any research. Um, I bet his nickname was the Professor. <laughs> not also professing not to understand how like LED lights worked and all this stuff where the default mode is just ignorance, self-deprecation, the idea that like it's you you actually look stupid to know stuff and to like do your work in advance that you don't want to like actually have anyone think that you're uh, smart because it's not relatable. And so I asked, I, I, it's always been kind of a mystery to me why announcers do this. So I asked Ian Eagle, great announcer, respect the dude, NBA, NFL, has done it for for decades. And so I asked him why uh, announcers do this. And he said he did, he put it into a larger category of self-deprecation, um, a way for announcers to sound like they're just like you. They're just like everyone in the, the audience um, and that it's, you know, it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, and it's just like how jocks talk about, you know, sitting on the end of the bench, or, you know, Bob Euchre made a whole career 
out of talking about what a bad player he was. And Ian said that for his part, he claims to not have done the I'm a dumb guy and did poorly in school thing. He says the thing that he does is like talk about his height and about how all the players that he meets in production meetings are so much bigger than him, how they dwarf him, and that that's like a relatable thing that emphasizes how like rare and special these athletes are um, as opposed to um, with the like I did bad in school thing. The part that's like really kind of counterproductive is it always gets brought up in the context of like in the LSU game. Skylar Mays is a player for LSU. He's pre-med. He's a 4.0. The entire purpose of the conversation was to point out what a good student he is, what a great example he is, how outstanding he is. And then you end up just spending two minutes talking about how you did really badly in middle school. It just like takes attention away from the thing that we're supposed to be praising and instead puts it on stupidity instead of smarts. And that's bad. You shouldn't do it, announcers. It's ha- I mean, the worst part of it is that it's hacky. It's just like a stupid cliche. People shouldn't do it. Come up with like a new crutch, like a new dumb joke, because this dumb joke about being dumb, it's done. Everyone's afraid of intellectuals. Anti-intellectualism is the rage, Josh. Since time immemorial? For a long time. Sean Farnham is operating in a long and proud tradition of idiocy. Yes. Self-proclaimed idiocy. All right. Well, keep on keep on doing your thing, dude. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also going to put in a good word for El Gabfest in Espanol, Slate's first Spanish language podcast. You got Leon Krause. You got Fernando Pizarro. You've got Ariel Muzatzos. They're focusing on U.S. politics and current events, but they also take on international news as well as sports and culture. Every week they have a newsmaking guest. They had uh, Jorge Ramos on recently. They had Congressman Luis Gutierrez. They had uh, Senator Tim Kaine. Spanish is wonderfully fluent. And for Slate Plus listeners, there's also an English language segment. So non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts on the news of the day. You can get a new episode every Thursday morning, and you can get it at slate.com slash LGATFEST. Nice job on the R-ray, Josh. Thank nice. you. That was good. For Stefan Fatsis. I'm Josh Levine, remembers Alma Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.